of God, who is the exemplar of the Holy Church, and pray. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, it never was it known that anyone who to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgin, our mother. To thee do we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sore. O Mother of the Word, despise not our petitions, but in thy clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. Our Lady, Mother of the Church, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Amen. Okay, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. You hear me all right? Yes. The furnace just went on over here. So um, so tonight is our last lecture, and it is going to be about the Blessed Virgin Mary as the mother and exemplar of the church. Uh, do you know what I mean by exemplar? Example. Yeah, pretty much an example, uh, but more than that. And um, it's a short lecture, so we shouldn't, we're not gonna go the whole period at all. Um, at the end of the class, I will give you the instructions and the information that you'll need for the final exam, okay? Father, uh, this is Vin. Will the final be cumulative or just from the midterm? Just from the midterm. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So it's interesting that as important as the Blessed Virgin Mary is for the life and devotion of Catholics, it's rather remarkable that the first council of the church that actually dealt with her in any extended way was Vatican Council II. Certainly other councils dealt with her, um, Council of Ephesus, of course, giving her the title Theotokos, but that was in response to the Nestorian heresy, and uh, no council has actually get uh, comprehensive, extended uh, treatment of all of the Virgin Mary in the life of the Church. Uh, until Vatican II and 1962 to 1965. There was a draft of a document on Mary that the council had prepared and it was being worked on as the council proceeded. Uh, and the question that was being treated by the council was where should they place that, that draft, that document on Mary? Uh, should it be part of another document? Uh, should it be a standalone document all by itself? And that was important because one of the goals of the Second Vatican Council, remember, was to explain Catholic teaching to those who are outside of the church. That was one of the goals of Vatican II. Um, and the Catholic teaching on Mary is one key area, obviously, where there is misunderstanding with our separated brethren, as well as differences in our understanding of her role and theirs. 
So the decision was eventually made to place the Council's teaching on the Virgin Mary as the final chapter of Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the Church, which we have been working with and dealing with the whole semester in this course. And that proved to be a very fruitful, I think, and inspired decision, not only for the Council's teaching on Mary, but also for the Council's teaching on the Church. Because the reason they placed it there, as rather than as a standalone document, they wanted to show the profound, and this is the answer to question number one on your handout, the review, the questions for review. I emailed you and I also posted on Populi uh, the updated questions for review. So you can disregard the ones on your handout and just deal with the ones that I sent you today. So the reason was they wanted to show this profound connection between the place of Mary in Catholic life and devotion and the nature and mission of the church herself. And that's why they placed it there at the end of Lunar Gentium. So chapter, chapter eight of the dogmatic constitution on the church uh, constitutes the lengthiest treatment on the Blessed Virgin Mary by any ecumenical council of the church in church history. Um, we have a bit of commentary on the church's decision to place Mary in Lumen Gentium uh, by a, a bishop, Bishop Marcello uh, Semerano Raro. He's the bishop of the diocese of Albano, Italy, and he was a former professor of theology at the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. And in a textbook of his, uh, it's unfortunately it's not translated into English. Uh, this textbook of ecclesiology, um, it's used only in um, Roman universities, Italian universities. Uh, pontifical universities that are teaching a course like this. Um, it's entitled Mistero Communione e Missione. So Mystery, Communion, and Mission. Um, and on page 249 of that Theology of the Church textbook, we have a quote from him there. It's uh, in English translation. Okay. Um, so, uh, Paul, why don't you read that for us, please? It reads, at the, at the end of a reflection on the church, considered as de Trinitate in Trinitatum, on pilgrimage in the world toward her perfection in the kingdom of which the church carries within herself the seed and the mystery, attention is fixed now on Mary, the humble handmaid of the Lord, who in the totality of her person is totally oriented toward the mystery of the Trinity and is precisely for this reason a mirror of the church. In her, the church contemplates her own mystery. So when the church looks at the Virgin Mary, she sees all that she herself is called to be. See? Our Lady never laid, never took her eyes off God, right? Um, so in looking at her, the church sees in a summary, if you will, all that the church herself is called to be. The one who is devoted to God, who allows God to place within her the seed that is born 
as the Word made flesh. So in Mary, we have the foretaste and the summary of all the church is called to be by God, okay? Collectively, but of course also as individuals, as individual believers. And now this this lecture tonight is by no means um, an exhaustive one on the role of Mary in the church. For that, you will have to take my Mariology course whenever when it's offered again. Vinny took it, I believe. Vinny was yes, I did. Where we get into everything, you know. It's all about the theology of Mary. We're just yes. touching on things and her relationship to the church in this particular lecture. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, a lot of depth that we would go into in a course like Mariology. Okay? So in Lumen Gentium, Mary is hailed as the mother of the son, the beloved daughter of the father, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the church as the sign and instrument of the communion of the Blessed Trinity residing on earth begins her earthly pilgrimage in the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay? We can actually say that at one point in the history of salvation, everything the church is going to be is already present in the person of Mary, the mother of God. This is pretty deep theology and very beautiful. So let's look at Lumen Gentium 63 and see what it has to say there. Uh, let's see. How about Diane, please? By reason of the gift and role of divine maternity, by which she is united with her son, the Redeemer, and with his singular graces and functions, the Blessed Virgin is also intimately united with the Church. As St. Ambrose taught, the mother of God is a type of the church, the order of faith, charity, and perfect union with Christ. For in the mystery of the church, which is itself rightly called mother and virgin, the blessed virgin stands out in eminent and singular fashion as exemplar, both of virgin and mother. By her belief and obedience, not knowing man, but overshadowed by the Holy Spirit as the new Eve, she brought forth on earth the very Son of the Father, showing an undefiled faith, not in the word of the ancient serpent, but in that of God's messenger. The Son whom she brought forth is he whom God placed as the firstborn among many brethren, namely the faithful, in whose birth and education she cooperates with a maternal love. Okay, so you see here the depth of this theology in St. Ambrose, um, how Our Lady is a type of the church. You know what we mean by a type. Remember we talked about this some earlier on in the course, all right? Typology is um, a, something that in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant that is that foreshadows it's a reality in the new covenant so she is a type of the church in the order of faith charity and perfect union with christ and then we're told why right um her belief her obedience um her undefiled faith right her putting her trust in the word of the archangel gabriel which was who was bearing the word of god to her 
rather than putting her trust in the word of the serpent, um, she becomes both virgin and mother. We're going to see more about that in a minute. Now, there's a biblical clue to Mary as a living symbol of God's church. In uh, Luke chapter 1, the Annunciation Gospel that we are all familiar with, and in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 28, the archangel Gabriel goes to her, and his first words are, rejoice or hail, full of grace. In Greek, it loses something, it loses something in English. Um, in, in the original Greek uh, text, it basically means um, he's addressing her as if she, she, the hail of, full of grace was her proper name. And kekaratomeni, which is the Greek, means she who is, you who are fully, completely, uh, enduringly endowed with grace. And that's like her name. And he's also addressing her as if she, you may remember this, Vinny, from the variology class, he's also addressing her as if she, as she is his queen. Mm-hmm. by these words so kare which is the greek kare kekaritomine kare literally means rejoice you who are full of grace right and that calls to mind a couple of prophetic passages in the old testament there's an allusion here to zephaniah chapter 3 14 to 17 um <laughs> Father, go ahead. Shout for joy, O daughter Zion. Sing joyfully, O Israel. Be glad and exult with all your heart. O daughter Jerusalem, the Lord has removed the judgment against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You have no further misfortune to, to fear. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, be not discouraged. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty Savior. Now, can you see the same word that um, uh, Gabriel uses, is used here, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. That is an image of the Virgin Mary. She, even daughter of Zion is one of her titles. Okay? Um, Fear not, it says. Again, you see the parallel in Gabriel's response to her. What does he say to her? Do not fear, Mary. You have found favor with God, right? You have found favor with God, right? So we see that parallel in Zephaniah. You also see it in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly again, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious, is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, foal of a donkey. So the greeting of the archangel Gabriel then, and the words he speaks to Mary, are remarkably reminiscent of these prophecies from the Old Testament. Mary is a living symbol of God's people, his bride, now called upon to rejoice 
because her God is within her. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty Savior. With Mary, he wasn't just in her midst, he was in her womb, right? When she said her yes at the Annunciation. So this language recalls the angel's words to her, right? Mary is an image for God's people also. She's a model of the fruitfulness of human receptivity to God's word and action. Okay? In Mary, we see something that holds true for the whole Catholic theology, the theology of grace, the theology of church, and all that that involves. God, here, here's the point. God will not save us uh, against our will, and God wills to involve human freedom in the unfolding of his plan of salvation, even granting to it an indispensable role. When God decides to bring his divine son into the world, he does so by calling upon the freedom of a human creature, Mary, and asking her to become his mother. Right? Human freedom is an indispensable element in God's plan. Okay? God's grace undergirds the human response and ensures its efficacy, its success, if you will. So in Mary, the human acceptance of God's plan freely offered right, is unconditional and total. God asked her to become his mother, and her free and total consent was necessary, but he undergirds her freedom of consent with his grace, right? He's not going to say to her, okay, great, you know, you're going to be the mother of God, the son, but now you're on your own. No, he prepared her. He chose her, and he prepared her. And all of the privileges of Mary, as we call them, which now have become dogmas, right, of the church, um, were ways in which God prepared her, okay? You know, her divine maternity, her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, her assumption, all those were um, graces that God gave her because of her unique role to be the mother of God, okay? So Mary becomes, with her yes, she becomes the church in seed form, okay? At Nazareth, at the foot of the cross, at Pentecost, and in her assumption, okay? She's the church in, in Latin, we say, in nucleo, in seed form, okay? Then, going on, just, I'm cherry-picking here, Luke 1, again, the Annunciation, verse 35, Gabriel says to her, the spirit of the Most High will overshadow you. The word overshadow, uh, which was comparatively rare in the Greek Old Testament, has been seen to indicate the divine presence that descended on the Ark of the Covenant or on the Tent of Meeting, where the Ark was kept, or even on the whole encampment of the Israelites. That's where we find this expression overshadow over the ark and the cloud of the divine presence over God's people during their encampment in the desert. 
Elizabeth's words to Mary, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That Those words can be seen as reminiscent of King David's words uttered in reverent fear when he said in 2 Samuel 6, 9, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? The ark was the privileged sign of God's presence among the people during their pilgrimage through the desert. The manna and the tablets of the law were placed in the ark. The ark was carried into battle against the enemies of Israel. So the spirit of the Most High will overshadow you, uses the very same allusion to the ark. The same spirit that overshadowed the ark of the Old Covenant will overshadow Mary. That's the very same Greek word that's used by Gabriel here. Excuse me, Father. Would it be wrong or inaccurate to say, because just in listening to what we're discussing, the ark was also where God resided in earth, and in a sense, God is residing in a human vessel in in Mother Mary. Exactly. Not that an inaccurate parallel? Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. So, so Mary then can be considered to be like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. She is the Ark of the New Covenant, okay. where God, as David just said, where God is going to come to dwell in the flesh. Okay. Her womb is the Ark of the New Covenant, and she herself becomes the Ark holding the divine presence within her. In the book of Revelation, um, uh, Joan, would you read that for us, please? Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay, that's 1119, now we'll do 12, 1 to 2. A great potent, a portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Some scripture scholars say that the woman depicted in Revelation 12, 1 to 2 is Mary, Others say that it is the church, the people of God. Well, as we read these biblical passages and the allusions to the Old Testament coming together, there is no contradiction at all uh, between saying that the woman of Revelation is Mary or the woman of Revelation is the church. Why? This answers one of your questions on that. Questions for review. Why? Because Mary in her own person is the single most important image of the church. She's the one in whom the old covenant becomes the new covenant. She embodies that transition. Okay, So it's perfectly valid to say that the woman of Revelation 12, 1 to 2, represents both Mary and the church because they cannot be separated. 
Mary in the mystery of the church is venerated also as both virgin and mother. Um, there's a, a book that I, I, I quoted there from Our Lady in the Church by Fathers, Fathers Hugo Rahner. He's the brother of the theologian Carl uh, Rahner. Fathers of the Church refer to Mary as the new Eve. Why? Because by her virginal consent to God's will, in accepting unconditionally her role as the mother of Christ, she becomes the new Eve in relation to the new Adam, who is Jesus. Okay. The early tradition of the church, with a few exceptions, um, witness to the perpetual virginity of Mary as well. She was a virgin before, during, and ever after the birth of our Lord. It's beyond, as I said before, it's beyond the scope of this lecture tonight to go into detail about that. Uh, but in Mariology, we certainly uh, do. The perpetual virginity of Mary is important in the history of salvation. And this is another question on your review sheet. Not because there's anything wrong with sex, especially in the marital context, that somehow Jesus would have been less holy if he had been conceived through the natural course of nature. Why? But because the way in which he was conceived shows the causality by which he was conceived was not the natural causality of sexual relations, but a supernatural causality. His incarnation was supernatural in origin, a conception and a birth that could only come about by divine intervention. Okay. Also, his father is not a human father, but almighty God. So this virginity of Mary led the church to reflect throughout her history on that supernatural causality. And the church herself is a virgin who likewise brings forth to birth new children by a supernatural means. How? How does the church bring to birth new children? Baptism. Adopted children of God. Baptism. Through the baptismal font. And we have a beautiful reflection on this in Pope Leo the Great, Pope Saint Leo the Great, in one of his Christmas sermons. So in the fifth century, Saint Leo the Great compares the baptismal font of the church to Mary's womb. Um, uh, James, please. The origin that Christ took in the womb of the Virgin, he has placed in the baptismal font. He has given to the water that which he gave to the mother. In fact, the power of the Most High and the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, which brought it about that Mary brought forth the Savior, also brings it about that the water brings the believer to rebirth. This is a beautiful reflection about how Our Lady, in her individual existence, gave birth to Christ is an overshadowing of the church in her existence as virgin and mother giving birth to the faithful. In fact, um, for you future deacons or for anyone who's attended a baptism, uh, there's a beautiful long prayer. It's an optional prayer. There's a number of different where the, where the deacon or the priest 
uh, prays over the baptismal water and blesses it. And it goes through, the, 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 the longer one is very, very rich in symbolism. It talks about how God's spirit hovered over the waters at creation, uh, how, the, over, how the Holy Spirit overshadowed uh, the waters at creation, because a new creation is about to take place in the soul of the baptized. So that same word is used here. Right, The same Holy Spirit that overshadowed the womb of Mary, uh, virgin and mother, overshadows the water of baptism when it's being blessed to give birth to new children, adopted children of God through grace. Now there's another reflection, not the most ancient, but perhaps the clearest summary after the Father's understanding of Mary as a type of the Church, it's found in the 12th century Cistercian writer, Isaac of Stella. Uh, he was a Trappist monk. So, uh, let's see, uh, somebody read that. Uh, uh, Douglas, please. Thank you. Both are mothers, both are virgins. Each conceives of the same spirit without concupiscence. Each gives birth to a child of God the Father without sin. Without any sin, Mary gave birth to Christ, the head for the sake of his body. By the forgiveness of every sin, the church gave birth to the body for the sake of its head. Each is Christ's mother, but neither gives birth to the whole Christ without the cooperation of the other. Well, that's very interesting. Now, Isaac of Stella is picking up on another reflection that St. Augustine had stated earlier that the Christ, Christ and his members, that is Christ together with the church, is the whole Christ. So here Isaac of Stella is uh, saying that neither Mary nor the church gives birth to the whole Christ without the cooperation of the other. There is such a profound connection here between Mary and the church, right? At a baptism, you need the cooperation of the baptized. In the case of infants, that, that, that cooperation, that consent, is given by the parents, right? The parents stand in uh, for the child. When adults are being baptized, obviously, uh, they need to make that consent themselves. But cooperation is necessary. Right? Just as it was with Mary, in the case of Mary, her consent was necessary. Now notice that the church in this belief and reflection on Mary is not at all, it's not making Mary into some kind of goddess. You'll hear rather often uh, this great misunderstanding among non-Catholics who think we overemphasize Mary or that we we worship her as like a fourth person of the Trinity, that she's she's on the same level as God, or she's a goddess. And some very liberal, radical feminist movements, even in the Catholic Church, have you know referred to her as a sort of a goddess figure, which is nonsense. All of that is just nonsense. Quite the contrary. Mary is very closely bound up with us. She's, she's um, emblematic of, of all that God wants to bring to fruitfulness in you and me and in all humanity, right? He wants to bring humanity to nothing less than the bearing of the flesh of God the Son in our own persons. Not the same way she did physically, 
but spiritually speaking, remember, I think I've mentioned before, the whole of the spiritual life of the Christian life is to reproduce within ourselves the life of Jesus. In, in the 15th century, 14th century, whatever it was, there was a beautiful, and it's still available, a beautiful, beautiful book um, by Thomas Akemphis called The Imitation of Christ. The whole, the whole, it's, you, you should all have a copy of that. It's a classic. It's not something you read cover to cover. You read, you digest it, you savor it. You know, uh, you, you, you can read a page or two each day. It's very enriching, and it teaches you how to reproduce this life of Christ, how to imitate him, right? So that's what God wants for all human beings. And as his word became flesh in the person of Mary, by the same Holy Spirit, he wants his word to become flesh in you and me, right? Um, in a different way, as I said, in our lives, right? And in our actions and in our choices as we become members of Christ uh, through baptism. Okay. Any questions up to this point? It's very beautiful, isn't it? Huh? Mm -hmm. The church's teaching on Mary is very beautiful, very, very rich, very theologically rich and deep. Um, unfortunately, it's so terribly misunderstood. Finally, the church looks to Mary as the eschatological icon of the church, right? The sign of created hope. Eschatological, again, uh, comes from the word uh, eschaton, the end. Uh, the field of theology, you could take a course called eschatology, which deals with the last, the four last things, heaven, uh, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. It also deals with purgatory um, and uh, the second coming of Christ. So, so as Mary was redeemed in an anticipated way, for example, through Immaculate Conception. Okay, again, when in Mariology, we have a whole lecture on the Immaculate Conception. We show how she needed to be redeemed, and she was redeemed in advance of Christ's coming by a pervenient grace, right? She was the first to be saved, if you will. So she was redeemed in an anticipated manner. So she experiences resurrection and glorification in an anticipated manner. And in both instances of resurrection and glorification, uh, those are all what you and I and every believer is destined to have as well. She's a sign of that because she embodies the church in the beginning and she embodies the church in the, at the end, the end of life. Mary's the only one who has been admitted to heavenly glory with a risen, glorified body after Christ. Only Christ and Mary, right? Her bodily assumption. So Mary experienced the resurrection and the glorification of her body, the glorified body, that all, are, all who die in the state of grace will one day have, right? We profess that in the creed. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The resurrection of the body has to do with, at the end of time, our bodies will be reunited with our souls and will be glorified. They will be 
after the pattern of Jesus' glorified body, the way Mary's is now. The bodies of the damned in hell will also rise, but their bodies uh, will, will not be glorified. They will be immortal, but not glorified. In fact, they'll suffer more in their physical bodies, the pains of hell, uh, than they are now in just their soul. And likewise, the saints in heaven, uh, who are there now, will receive greater glory and more joy and experience the joys of heaven more fully in their glorified body. And they will possess the qualities of the glorified body, which St. Thomas Aquinas describes, you know, agility, subtlety, radiance, immortality, things like that. Okay. So in Mary, the church looks at her in her risen glorified state. And she contemplates what she herself will be at the end of her earthly journey when all is consummated at the end of time. Okay, That's why she's an eschatological icon for the church. Okay. So she's, an, she's a sign and a, an emblem of the perfection that awaits all of us as God's gift both the church and every individual, every member of the church will experience this if they die in the state of grace. Okay. So let me close this section. Yes, question? Yeah, quick question. If Mary was preserved from original sin, then why did she have to be redeemed? That was the way she was redeemed. Follow me? By being preserved? Yes. Yes. Okay. The merits of Christ's uh, uh, passion and resurrection were applied to her in advance, okay? And thereby she was preserved from the state of original sin. Okay? Every human being has to be redeemed. Mary was no exception. Okay? Except Jesus, though. Right, of course, because he was the son of some God. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sure. And if you take Mariology, we're going to go into that in you know, a lot of detail. Now, allow me to close this section. There's a beautiful reflection here, by again, by Bishop Marcello Semeraro uh, in that same book, Mystery, Communion, and, and uh, Mission, uh, on page 262, where he reflects on Mary as the, as the emblem of what the church is to be in the fulfillment, in the final fulfillment of all things. So, um, let's see, uh, who would like to, to read that for us, huh? George? Hey, good, George. The Ark of the New Covenant then has concluded her earthly journey and lives now in the sanctuary of heaven, immersed in the fullness of the blessed vision of that trinity from which she came forth. After having looked on earth as the bearer, the very mystery of salvation and the whole human race, and after having nourished the world by bringing forth for it the Savior, after having walked with her son and reached together with him the goal of his hour, after having experienced on Calvary the pangs of the new birth, Mary already shows to the church 
or ecclesiastical destiny and and anticipates by her own glorious lot. Okay. (laughs) The divine fulfillment of the divine plan and its revelation all its splendor. Anticipation of the whole church is then becoming finally that which Mary already is now. Isn't that beautiful? No. Again, it says, immersed in the fullness of the blessed vision of that trinity from which she came forth. Now, we've got to be careful theologically here because if a Protestant reads that, uh, the Protestant's going to say, what do you mean she came forth from the trinity? See, I told you she's, you you, you believe she's the fourth person of the trinity? No, when we speak of her coming forth from the trinity, is that the trinity is responsible and the causative factor, the causative causality of the whole of creation, of redemption, of the incarnation, everything. Mary is a work of the trinity, okay? She receives grace from the, everything she is, she received from the trinity. And that's what it means when it says she came forth from the trinity. The perfection that she is, is God's, she's God's masterpiece. St. Louis de Montfort, uh, in his, um, his writings about Mary, uh, writes very beautiful about that. She is a, a garden enclosed, the new paradise, where the serpent did not enter. Right? He had no entryway into Mary. So, because all that she is, she is a gift of the Trinity. All right? And then it goes on to say how she walked with God on this earth. She walked with her son. She accompanied him uh, at, uh, in Nazareth at the foot of the cross. She entered into his hour, his passion and death, experiencing the pain of that, right? Um, and yet, now look where she is now, right? Which is our destiny as well, okay? All right. So, the next question is, we're going to look at briefly Mary's uh, spiritual motherhood. As a mother, she's virgin and mother, okay? She's the mother of the church. And, And as mother of the church, Mary is the advocate of God's people and the mediatrix of all graces. So on your questions for review, how does she exercise her spiritual motherhood? By being the advocate of God's people and by being the mediatrix of all graces. An advocate is someone who takes your side, someone called to your side, right? Someone who looks out for your welfare. Mary does that from heaven on our behalf as a good mother because she is solicitous for our eternal salvation. As a good mother, she's aware of the dangers we face in this life, the, 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 the temptations from the world, the flesh, fallen nature, the devil, uh, the distractions of the world, uh, the confusion of the world. She's very much aware of this as a good mother, 
she wants to lead all of her children uh, from the baptismal font to the heights of glory. So she is our advocate, right? Our advocate with whom? With her son. She is also the mediatrix of all graces. And we're going to look at um, what some of the fathers have to say about this. Uh, this has not been solemnly defined as a dogma, the way the assumption as or the perpetual virginity of Mary or her immaculate conception or her divine motherhood has. Although there is a movement, theological movement, that has, uh, wants to petition the Holy Father uh, to declare the fifth Marian dogma, which is Mary as mediatrix of uh, all graces. But it is established doctrine. And as we see, we, we, we read some of these, we're not going to read all of them. Some of these, we have the witness of the fathers. This goes back along. Shut up. So you have St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Uh, he speaks of where Eve had disobeyed God, Mary was persuaded to obey God, that she might become the advocata, the advocate of the virgin Eve. So there we see her as advocate. Ephraim the Syrian, she is the friendly advocate of sinners. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, we have two, some, he was a great writer about her. Wish to have an advocate with Christ, have recourse to Mary, and also Our Lady, our mediatrix, our advocate, reconciles us to your Son. Reconcile us to your Son. Commend us to your Son. Represent us to your Son. This is what she does in heaven. And then the next quote from Bernard Duskurgo is very, very beautiful. Um, uh, Vinny, why don't you read that since you took Mariology? Uh, the second sentence there or opens the abyss she opens the abyss of God's mercy to whomever to whomsoever she wills when she wills and as she wills so that there is no sinner however great who is lost if Mary protects him all men present past present and to come should look upon Mary as the means and negotiator of the salvation of all ages. A mediator then was needed with the mediator himself, nor could a more fitting one be found than Mary. As the moon is placed between the sun and earth, so is Mary stationed between God and us to pour out his graces continually upon us. God has placed in Mary the plenitude of good, every good in order to have us understand that if there is any trace of hope in us, any trace of grace, any trace of salvation, it flows from her. God could have dispensed his graces according to his good pleasure without making use of this aqueduct, Mary. But it was his wish to provide this means whereby grace would reach you. Uh, thank you. So Bernard of Clairvaux loves to use this expression, Mary, as the aqueduct through which all graces flow. They flow from the cross of our Lord and they pass through Mary to the human race. 
That's what mediatrix of all graces means. Okay, she's the, the aqueduct. And why? Because this is God's will. This is how God wants it, how he planned it. Okay. He also Bernard also composed, by the way, the Hail Holy Queen, the Salve Regina. He is the author that, of that, I love that prayer. beautiful prayer, right? To you do we cry, poor banished children of Eve, right? To you do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley. We'll pray that at the end. I think Bernard of Siena is another great um, theologian, a Franciscan, uh, who wrote very beautifully of Mary as well. Um, so uh, uh, where's uh, Robert, Robert Levy? Is Robert here? <laughs> yeah, he's there. To you do we cry out, poor banished children of Eve. Oh, we to read you that. Do... I read that. The next one. Read the next oh, one. Oh, Sienna. Mary is the dispensatrix of all the graces God bestows on man. This is the process of divine graces. From God they flow to Christ. From Christ to his mother and from her to the church. I do not hesitate to say that she has received a certain jurisdiction over all graces. They are administered through her, through her hands. Okay, so, um, when Our Lady appeared to St. Catherine Labore at the Rue de Bac in Paris in 1832-ish, something like that, uh, she saw that Our Lady was wearing gemstone rings and some of the rings had rays of light that were coming forth from them and others where there was no light and saint catherine asked our lady um why are some of these the precious stones and those rings radiating light and others are not and our lady said the ones that are radiate not radiating light represent the graces that people do not ask for from me. So you see, even there, at the, in the devotion to the miraculous medal, uh, you see that same idea. The popes and Vatican II and St. Louis de Montfort all pretty much said the same kind of thing. Uh, we have uh, Pope Pius XI um, down there. Um, She's also queen and advocate, right? Uh, in Mariology, we go into an exegesis of um, the Book of Kings, First Kings, where um, Bathsheba is brought into the King David's presence, and a little throne is set up there for her. And the people, she was the queen mother. And in ancient Israel, the Gerabah in Hebrew, the queen mother, the people would bring to the queen mother their requests. She was an advocate for the people, and she would bring them to her son, King David and King Solomon. I should actually, not King David, King Solomon, he was her son. So we see that as a type of Mary's role as queen mother, right, and advocate of God's people. Pius the Eleventh, um, Colleen, would you read that for us, please? First thing in 
her intercession with Christ our Lord, who, though sole mediator between God and man, wished herself to be, to make his mother advocate for sinners and the dispenser and mediatrix of grace. So as our advocate in heaven and the spiritual mother of all the faithful, all the graces that Jesus won upon the cross pass from God to Mary, and then Mary distributes them as she knows best. So we see that Mary is not only emblematic of what the church is and should be and will be, she's also an active spiritual mother who ceaselessly intercedes uh, with her son on our behalf as our advocate, our mediatrix, and our queen. This is her role in heaven until the end of time. So I'd like to close the lecture. We have a, we have a quote there from uh, the Catechism uh, uh, 969, but I'd rather close it with Lumen Gentium 61, which I think sums this up very, very beautifully. Uh, so someone read the first uh, Lumen Gentium 61. Uh, doctor, please. Dr. Lane. Anthony. Got it. Here? Yep, yeah. I'm here. Uh, predestined from eternity by that decree of divine providence, which determined the incarnation of the Word to be the Mother of God, the Blessed Virgin was on this earth, the Virgin Mother of the Redeemer, and above all others, and in a singular way, the generous associate and humble handmaid of the Lord. She conceived brought forth the nourished Christ. She presented him to the Father in the temple and was united with him by compassion as he died on the cross. In this singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the work of the Savior in giving back supernatural life to souls. Wherefore, she is our mother in the order of grace. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, uh, I don't know, Vinny, if you remember from Mariology, uh, it's been a while, um, where it says there that she was united with her son by compassion as he died on the cross. As she stood at the foot of the cross and was associating herself with his sufferings. Yeah, we called her co-redemptrix. Oh, boy. You'll get a star, three stars tonight. Exactly. That's where we get the uh, the, the, the the title of co-redemptrix. Come with, as in Latin, she was co-redemptrix with Christ. Okay. Again, that's a very misunderstood doctrine, by even by Catholics. Now, uh, Lumen Gentium sixty-two. Um, who would like to close it up? I'll do it. This maternity of Mary in the order of grace began with the consent which she gave in faith at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross and lasts until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this salvific duty, but by her, her constant intercession continued to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. By her maternal charity, she cares for the brethren of her son, 
who still journey on earth surrounded by dangers and cultics until they are led into the happiness of their true home. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked by the Church on the, under the titles of Advocate, Auxiliatrix, Adjutrix, and Mediatrix. This, however, is, is to be un, so understood that it, is nev- that it never, never, neither takes away from nor adds anything to the dignity and efficaciousness of Christ, the one mediator. Okay, so Mary's role is subordinate to that of the Son, right? That's what the church is trying to say there, and flows from his merits, okay? Um, you know, I think closing with this lesson tonight is very um, apropos, uh, not only because it's very beautiful and theologically rich, but because of what the world is enduring right now, you know? Um, we have to remember that we have a mother in heaven in the order of grace who is aware you have no idea. of what is happening and is interceding for us with her son. Right? And when, especially you doctors and nurses and healthcare providers, when you sit by the bedside of someone with COVID-19 and you're trying to save their life, their family can't be present, even if they, d- they die alone, except maybe for your presence with them. Uh, family can't be there. Family can't visit. You know, that's really, you are at the foot of the cross. You are at the foot of the cross with Mary in those moments. Right? And I hope you can appreciate that and maybe think, reflect on that as you go about your very difficult uh, duties uh, during this time of pandemic. You, as a believer, as a Catholic, in a sense, can take her place, right? You can intercede uh, for them, even if it's just to offer a silent Hail Mary uh, or the Chaplet of Divine Mercy or whatever you can find time to pray for these these so afflicted people, okay? Hey, Father. Yes. Can I, so can I just ask like, a practical question? Sure. Meaning, um, so when we pray, is it is it wrong to pl- to pray directly to Jesus? Should we always be praying through Mary to Jesus? And when He dispenses His graces through her, does He dispense His graces through her, whether we ask for it or not? In other words, whether we recognize Mary or not. So, for example, when you pray, do you pray? through mary to jesus sometimes but not always we can certainly pray directly to the father directly to the son directly to the holy spirit but whatever graces the trinity gives to us will pass through the hands of mary that's what we have catholics have that that beautiful simple phrase to jesus through mary right 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 he's our mediatrix Okay. Protestants go crazy when we talk like this because they don't understand it. I say, dare say, very few Catholics do, unless you study Mariology. Right. But it's very beautiful, you know. I mean, this is her role as as mother, as queen, as advocate, as mediatrix. These are her titles. These are her. This is what God has willed her to be on our behalf until the second coming. 
until the end of time. After the end of the world, after the resurrection of the body, there'll be a new earth, a new creation, whatever that, that's a mystery, whatever that will be. Then her role, uh, once she has seen her children safe in the kingdom, all of them, her role will, 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 will either stop there or change in some way. She needs a day off, Father. You need to shut up. <laughs> I don't think she would see it that way. Okay. okay. She needs it now with what's going on with the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. I can understand not having a day off. That's right. Now, one other thing I want to mention before we talk about the final. Um, this Friday... Um, Canada and the United States are going to be consecrated to Mary under the title of Mary, Mother of the Church. Mm. I don't know if I gave you a handout about that, but um, on February 11, 2018, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the, uh, the Discipline of the Sacraments provided us with a new obligatory memorial of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Church. It's in the general Roman calendar now. Um, it's celebrated every year on the Monday after Pentecost. Okay. That was Pope Francis's decision um, that it be that that her role as Mother of the Church be celebrated every year on that particular Monday. Okay. And um, I think I gave you the handout that explains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Cardinal Sarah explains its meaning and all of this. Uh, but we are going to be consecrated. Uh, and I happen to read the two prayers of consecration. That will be and yep, you're right. the second prayer uh, has a lot to do with the, the, the pandemic, really imploring her uh, to obtain from her son an end to this, to sustain our healthcare workers, to sustain victims, their families, as a good mother. So, you know. We certainly need it, not only because of the pandemic. We needed this before the pandemic. Yeah. The consecration of our country, uh, of all of North America, mm -hmm. uh, to, the, to the Virgin Mary, so she can exercise uh, more freely uh, her role as mediatrix, advocate, and queen on our behalf with her son. So that's it. Now, any questions? Then let me tell you about the uh, final exam, which I think will please all of you. Um, next week, I will um, email the final exam to you through Populi. And you will have one week to return it. Wow! Wow! And you will have um, you will have you will be able. It's basically a take home. Okay, great. So you'll be able to use your um, your notes. However, I will provide some instructions about it. Um, I I don't want you to use internet resources. Okay. I don't want you to use re uh, going and copying and pasting things from the internet mm -hmm. because that would be plagiarism. All right. Uh, so you have plenty of material in what I've given you in the notes, 
in the handouts, especially with the handouts, all the answers are there. So you really don't need to go much farther. If you want to impress me, you can quote from Lumen Gentium or one of the other documents on your handouts to, in answering, but I don't want a dissertation because the questions will come directly from the questions to re for review, either the, the revised ones that I sent you or the ones on your handout. If I didn't send you a revised questions and review for a particular lecture, then we'll, it'll come from the handout. And I'm not going to, I mean, we're not going to go through every single one of them because don't forget, I have to correct these. Plus I have to read 22 book reviews. Plus I have 32 final exams to correct for the seminarians in their spiritual theology class. So I'm going to be a busy beaver. We all are, but. So know, father, yeah. um, may I ask, so do you want the short answers like we gave you on the midterm? Yeah. If the short answer fits, give the short answer. Yeah, you don't have to go into a, a million and one uh, mosses. You know, I don't want a, uh, a lot of detail unless okay. I ask for it. Okay. All right. So, you know, you, you saw the, the review sheet I gave you, the, the one for this lecture. Yes. Uh, none of the, these are all very short answers. Right? Does it have to be typed? Ooh. Yes, I want you to type the, 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 I want it to be typed because some of you have chicken scratch uh, 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 for, for handwriting. Benny. I need to be able to understand what your answer is. He's talking about me. <laughs> now, for those of you who, whose first language is Spanish, please do not answer in Spanish because I don't have a facility in that language. And I don't have Father Soldania nearby like I did during the midterm, who could actually, he actually translated one particular exam that was in Spanish. He translated the answers for me. That's how I was able to correct it. Okay. So if your language is Spanish, uh, if you want to write the answers in Spanish, fine, but find somebody who will translate the exam into English for you. All right, you're going to have time to be able to do that, plenty of time. I could have given this exam next week, uh, next Monday, and given you the class period and you had to write it, finish it. Thank but you're going to have a whole week to do it. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. So, Thank you. I'll send it Thank to you, Father, tonight. All right. So please translate those answers into English, all right? Because okay. I cannot read Spanish. Okay, Father. Kabish. This is. Right. I can manage Italian, French, Italian and stuff. And Spanish is just I never I took one semester when I was twenty years old. And that was twenty that was fifty years ago. And Father, the book review is still due this coming Monday at, A week at from today, yes. yes. One week today. All right. Just uh, some of you have already mailed it to me. Uh, I will correct it and um, and with my, you know, I'll correct it online. I'm not going to print them all out or I'll run out of uh, ink here. I'm, I'm going to correct them online with the red font if there's anything I want to comment. And the grade will be, you'll see the grade and I'll send it back to you and the course will be posted. Okay? okay. Any questions about the final or anything pertaining to grades? No, I just wanted to thank you. This was a great course, especially mm -hmm. under these circumstances. I did miss my classmates, especially Joan. But, uh, but, uh, 
But anyway, thank you very much, Father. Thank you. You'll, you'll see her again. Yeah, I'm feeling the love, man. Joan, yeah. what are you taking next semester? I just want to know. Yeah, whatever you're taking. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Thank you. Um, thank you. Let's pray the Salve Regina. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, and as children of Eve, to thee do we send, we send our sighs, mourning and, and weeping, and the most gracious advocate, in the eyes of mercy towards us.